Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. Hey, this is Alex Raymond, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. Today, I speak with Julie Penner, who is someone who's had lots of experience in the startup world in accelerators as a coach and as an investor. And we're going to go through a lot of things that uh, are going to be impactful for you as a founder, entrepreneur, or CEO. We talk about things like how to resolve co-founder conflict, how to repair relationships, how to practice disagreement and get good at it. Uh, we also talk about how top coaches and entrepreneurs and CEOs need to do their own work. And you'll also learn Julie's perspective on accelerator programs. So these are startup accelerator programs like Techstars or Y Combinator. And she shares why they could be really good for your business, why they may not be a fit, and the top mistakes that she sees founders make as they go through the program. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, great. My guest on the episode today is Julie Penner. Julie is a community organizer in, well, let me say that again. My guest today is Julie Penner. Julie is a community leader here in Boulder, Colorado, and she is a coach for executives and CEOs. She is an entrepreneur in residence. She is an investor. She is a writer. She is someone who is deeply immersed in the culture and in the environment of startups and of entrepreneurs. And she is someone who has really uh, built her chops on working very closely with companies as they're at the early stages. And so really looking forward to this conversation with Julie to understand you know, how she thinks she sees things, uh, the types of people that she coaches and the kind of work that she does. So welcome and great to see you, Julie. Alex, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Now, you are someone who has touched almost every aspect of the startup or the entrepreneurial journey, and you have committed yourself to being a conscious leader, to helping others to uh, be their full selves, to really be true to themselves and to their mission. And you've done that at places like Techstars. I know that you do that with the Telluride Accelerator that you work at as well, and in many, many areas of your life. And so I'm curious, just to kick off the conversation, tell us about how you see the role of the entrepreneur evolving, uh, what you have seen be, you know, things that people should be paying attention to or not paying attention to, or where does a typical entrepreneur or startup founder get stuck in your view? Let, let's tear some of those apart or piece some of those apart. So let's start with, you know, I have some deep beliefs about the evolution of where companies are going. And I think that the workforce today is going to be much more attracted to the top talent is going to be attracted to 
companies that are run by conscious leaders. I think, you know, we have, if you are at the top of your, your field, you have the, your pick of companies. I see it in the startup game all the time. And I think our tolerance for leaders that aren't aware of how they're coming across, aren't aware of their impact on others is decreasing, right? I've seen that arc. You think about things that happened, you know, even in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, right? What was appropriate work behavior than what is now? I just think the bar continues to rise. And so for leaders, I think if they want and this is the most practical argument. This is not the like do the right thing and be a good human for humanity's sake, right? I, I can make that argument as well, the kind of the spiritual ethical argument. Um, but I'm making the practical argument here, which is if you want to build a great company, you have to attract great people. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have great people, you have to treat them well. And to treat them well, you have to understand how you're impacting them. And that starts with your own work. So that's that's kind of my thesis on where companies are going or that the trend that is happening now that leaders should be paying attention to. So I'll, I'll stop there. And, um, so, so, so so our expectations are evolving. And what you're, what you're saying is if you really, if you're starting a company, you're starting out working on something and you want to have the biggest possible impact, you have to be very aware and very uh, diligent about how you are treating others. And presumably that also means how you, treat yourself, how you talk to yourself, and the things that you are modeling as a leader. Is that right? I think that's true. I think it's too much at the beginning to do all of that uh, at the start, right? I I think the simplest way we sometimes talk about this is culture within a company. And I've seen companies, so I worked, worked at Techstars, I've worked with over 100 early stage companies, earliest days. And some small percentage of them really understand that culture is important from the very beginning. Like day one, they understand the importance of culture. It's not the norm, right? Uh, most folks, most founders have to layer in doing work on culture as they grow. Um, and I actually think that's the best way to go about it. Sometimes the companies who start too early and do too much around culture and, and working on uh, themselves and consciousness can do that at the expense of actually making progress on the business and the it's business a distraction, right? It could be a distraction. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, you know, we don't want to, I feel like that's not out there as much, but you have to kind of right size the amount of work on yourself and the culture. You can't do none and you can't do it all day. Right. Um, you have to do it just like everything else in the business. You have to do uh, enough of it so that you have the seeds planted early on so that, as you grow the company, you have something to work with. Because if you don't, if you don't put any seeds in the ground early on, then you get to like 30, 50, 100 people and you have a, you have a terrible culture. And then it, like it, to course correct is, is basically impossible. We have stories about them. founders talk about stories like this. There's yeah. something worse than failure is building a company that you end up hating that's successful. That's awful. That should be. Wow. In the back of your mind as an entrepreneur, like that's another way to get this wrong. Right. And that's very powerful. In fact, that one, like it still gives me chills when I talk about it. Right. So again, so the worst thing that can happen, just to summarize what you're saying, the worst thing that can happen is uh, I work on something and I'm not paying attention to say culture, uh, stuff like that. And I wind up building a company that I hate. 
Yeah, that it's successful. That's successful. Uh, successful and you know, I have air quotes here, right? Successful in that it makes money, it is profitable, it, it continues to grow. Right? People want the thing that you're, the product or service you're selling, but you actually don't like going to your own company. It's like not liking your own child. You've put so much <laughs> blood, sweat, tears, and energy into this thing. Yeah. And then, and then you don't like it. It's awful. So what's one to do? So, so if one finds oneself in that situation, what do you do about it? So that's a pretty, that's a pretty dire strait to be in. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this happened, this is part of Tony Shea's story at 10%. Um, I'm sorry. What is the name of his book? Zappos. Oh, in, in uh, Delivering yeah, Happiness. Delivering Happiness. Right. So he talks about this. Um, the founder of CD Baby talks about it a little bit too. Um, that's a, that's a great book. If you pick it up, I can't remember the, the name of the title. Um, and then the story in Delivering Happiness, right? There are two founders that have the best examples mm -hmm. of uh, building a thing that they didn't pay enough attention to culture and they didn't like the output. So if you're already there, right? You already have the thing. It's successful. It's, it, it flew the coop. Like they, they both left their companies and started another company. They just like started from scratch. So if that's where you are, I'm sorry. You, you did it wrong. Start over. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in the middle, I think there's lots of hope. Right. That you can today. Right. The I love the the quote. I believe it's a Chinese quote. Right. Best uh, dated planetary is 20 years ago. Second best date of planetary is today. Right? right. So if you didn't plant the tree uh, 20 years ago, i.e. Uh, at the very beginning of your company, let's start today. Mm -hmm. Start today. And the flip side of what you're saying there is. Uh, there can be a situation where I'm spending too much time. I'm over-indexing on culture at the beginning and I'm neglecting to build a business or something that product or service that people yes. actually want or care about. And, yep. you know, I think we've both seen companies like that, either in Techstars where you were a program manager for what, five years at Techstars? Yeah. 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 So, I, so you were a program manager. For... You saw this. I went through Techstars uh, as a participant and I've been a mentor in Techstars then for a long time since. And we've seen the companies that just get so into this stuff and they kind of become famous, quote unquote, for their culture and for how they are. And they totally forget about the business part of building a business and they, and they neglect that. And then they wind up with a great culture and nobody wants to buy what they're, what they're selling. Yeah, it happens. So that's, that's, yeah, well put. I sometimes see founders that the reason, so one of the things I work on with, with companies is why they started the business with founders, because I think it's so telling and it ends up being determinative of issues down the road, right? So if they started a company in order to build something that has a great culture, that's great in theory, and it really needs a balance. It is, it is not enough in and of itself to build something that has great impact on people. I love when companies have that, but it also has to have like, I want to serve customers, right? Well, and that, and, and I want to make money while I'm doing it. Because if you don't have that piece to it, then you don't get to have the impact that you want. Right. You're and never so, going to grow. You're yeah. never going to grow to any type of scale. Uh, if you don't have a business that's supporting it. So you, so you create the business yep. as a vehicle for culture or whatever, by the way, whatever other yep. change it is that you may want to do out there in the world. Yes. And I wish more founders saw it that way. Like I'm making money here so that I can have a bigger impact. It, it, I think it takes founders a little while to, 
to see how much of an impact they could actually have. I think they actually often under-index on how many decisions that they can make that have an impact on other people. And, and then it's like you open up a whole window of choices and then it's too much. So the founders that know how big, how open that window is, oh, look at all the choices where I could have uh, impact on people. I could, I could do things differently with customers. I could do different things with suppliers. I could do different things with employees, right? And on and on and on. All the people of a business will touch or impact, they, they could do that differently. And, and that becomes too much for the business. Like you got to pick some lanes to get in the early days to get specific about and to care about. And I think the founders that get that clear and say, I can do more later, but I, this is the layer I'm putting on now. And I'll come back to these things. And I have visions for how I can improve on, on these other parts of the business, how we are in the world in different ways in the future. I can grow just like I'm going to grow the process for hiring people as I grow the business. I'm going to mm -hmm. grow the sophistication I have in terms of how this company is in the world through you know, who I am and how I radiate out into the world. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. Now at the beginning, you mentioned, you know, the way that the way that people are showing up at, at work uh, is changing, right? And, and we're, we're demanding more or the, or the world is starting to ask more in terms of the behaviors of a CEO or an entrepreneur. Uh, and obviously one of the areas where this, the rubber really meets the road here is in the relationship with investors or people who bring resources into the company. And if, you know, if you can say something like, uh, hey, the world is changing in terms of how, how entrepreneurs and founders are showing up, I'm curious, what do you see happening on the VC side? Is that same evolution happening with VCs and investors? Are their expectations changing and are their behaviors changing? I mean, honestly, no, I don't, I don't see a lot of it. I think it's still the third or fourth standard deviation off of the normal VC. What I see is more normative in the venture community is a VC who says, you need to get a coach, right? And they're pretty hands-off after that. I have some suspicions about why that might be true. Um, and I think that there are some VCs that are different, right? Some of them came to the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Right, a VC who asks a founder in the due diligence process or in the in the getting to know you phase, what is your core wound and what are you doing about it? That is an exceptionally tuned in venture capitalist, and you know there are probably like I can count them on one hand. There's not there's not a lot of VCs who are walking around and asking what is your core wound and what are you doing no. as part of their due diligence. <laughs> not eh? at all. <laughs> not at not at all. And I you know I think VCs in general like they don't want to touch it. So you know, you didn't you didn't ask, but this is my viewpoint: is that uh, I'm going to use a stereotypical VC for this, right? Think of like just straight down the middle. If I conglomerate all VCs, and I'm I'm sorry to make blanket statements, average, but average this one VC, actually, average VC average person. VC. Okay. Okay. I think that they have been successful in their career by being very head oriented and very analytical. You can do that as an investment professional and be incredibly successful. But as a coach or as someone who is willing to hold space for the challenges that founders come up, it is inherently not head based or not exclusively head based, right? It's more embodied, it has emotional. In, uh, implications, right? It is integrated. 
And my feeling is most VCs haven't done that work. And not only have they not done that work, because they haven't been rewarded in their career in any way for doing that work, they're not about to do that work. Mm. And so they say, go get a coach, because they're not about to do it. They haven't done it. They're not interested in doing it. And they're not going to do it anytime soon. And and they don't want to be a coach or, dare I say, therapist to their no, founders. They, yeah, they want to be messy. the people providing resources and helping with strategy. Yeah. You know, I, I can work with, I work with you from the neck up and I'm so good at it. If you've got a good VC, right? And, and you might have a really great VC who absolutely fits that definition and they might be incredibly helpful to you. I'd say the next level up in VCs from that, understand their own limitations and say, you need coaching because they understand this, right? And this is the next like thing that sticks with me a lot when I talk about founders. And I tell them this when I start working with them. And that is you are the limiting factor on how big this company or how successful this company gets. Ooh, that's a good one. Say, say that again and explain what that, what that means. Yeah. So you as a founder, who you are, your shadows, you are the limiting factor on the success of this business. Now that again, it's another blanket statement and I'm sure we could find exceptions, but in general, right? I find, um, so here's the first one, right? This, this will come up reliably for founders. The first one they hit is letting go. At 10 people, they start to be a bottleneck on all the decisions and they have to empower others to start making decisions. Otherwise the company, like they can't move quickly enough. Every decision gets run through the CEO and it becomes so problematic. You have to start having teams and delegating at like 10, 12 people, right? It, start, it start to be, starts to be noticeable. If that founder CEO can't let go of all the control, that's the first place they're going to get limited and they will never go past a 10-person company. Kind of stereotypical and, that entrepreneurs are control freaks, right? Yeah, well, they, for good reason. I actually don't, I totally get this, right? Because at the beginning, it was just them. They did everything. They made all the decisions and that was required to be successful. And then the shift, right? Like this is why growth mindset to me is the number one characteristic of a, of a successful founder is because a number of times you have to shift what you're doing and how you think about your company. It's just tremendous. Right? And the first one is I do everything to, I have to get other people to do stuff for me. And it, And if you're, Building something right from one person to 10 people, that's not a lot, right? That often happens in a year or less. Year, 18 months, right? So you've got to shift how you think about doing roles, right? That's, that's actually, that's way more than intellectual. I can say all those words to a founder and they can understand that verbally, but if they don't get how it feels to give up control. So this is how I ask it to a founder. I, I asked this this week, all right, they're this company, 50 person company, they're hiring a salesperson, they have a leadership team hiring a salesperson, and the founders have been selling the product for years, right? And it's a technical sale, okay? The question I asked was, how are you going to feel the first time this very qualified salesperson who comes from a different industry sells it in a different way than you do? Because that moment will happen I hope if that salesperson is successful, that moment will happen and it will be so dreadfully uncomfortable for that founder. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, that is what I want. That's the juicy stuff. 
And so, and so, uh, I, I want to, I want to come back to the central theme that you stated where the limitation to growth or the upper limit, the ceiling of how successful the company can be is driven by the personality or the essence of the founder. And is this person willing to do what is required is what I hear you saying. Can, will this person do what is required to, uh, make the changes in their life or mindset to help the company reach its full potential. And it sounds like the first one yes. that you were talking about is, do I have a growth mindset? And even behind that, Julia, it sounds like the, the, the idea is, am I committed to a growth mindset or am I committed to change? Am I committed to getting out of my own way? Is that a fair way to put it? I would love to see founders be committed to a growth mindset, but most of the time what I see is a founder who runs into a wall so hard that they have to stop and reevaluate. Right. I, so I think it's forced can, on them. You, yeah. Yeah. In fact, most founders, that's how they, they learn, right. Is, uh, by having a painful lesson. And that's usually it's like this. And this is how it sounds, right. I would love to say like, Oh, it, it appears I did a retro. This is, this is my ideal scenario where I did a retro on last quarter. And it appears that I'm a, I'm a bottleneck or, or like it, it's developing that I am at the center of too many of the decision-making, like, can we work together on a win-for-all solution where I delegate more authority? It just never happens that way, right? It doesn't even sound like a startup. What happens is like enough late nights happen for a founder CEO where they are working till like 10 o'clock or they, they totally blow up their family's vacation and their spouse yells at them for working too much and they totally hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And then they have to make a change. And the good ones, when, when that happens, they, they can accept that the, like all the rubrics that they had for success for the last six months or the last year or the last 18 months now have to shift. Mm. Right. But, but very rare is the, is the CEO that I see that is forecasting ahead, the changes they're going to have to make in order to grow into the, uh, the next level. I'm, all, I'm usually only doing this if I find myself in a hole is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And so, so what's human. next? So what's yeah. next? after growth mindset. So, so what else do you see that the, the, what's separating the successful ones from the unsuccessful? ones? I mean, and at a company level, I think, I believe in the, you know, there's a, there's a lot you can control and there's a lot that you can't, right. That you can't control mm -hmm. everything in the market. You can't control the timing is one, right. I, um, I often feel for founders who get some of those things wrong and like just make a bad bet. Yep. Uh, but there are other there are other things. The letting go is is a man that one that one comes up all over the place. But another one is like I'll give you another example because I think these are helpful. Um, there's a CEO. I'm I'm actually not working with a CEO. I'm working with one of their executives, right? And the CEO wants to offload the process of doing his own work onto his team. So this is how it sounds. Uh, call me on my shit, right? Is what he is asking the team for. But he's not saying like, we're equal and we want all of us to grow together. What he's saying is, I'm requiring you to have conflict with me so that I can grow. Mm. Right? Um, that's a leader who I think is outsourcing a lot of responsibility to a team to help 
Like he's saying like, manage up to me, right? I'm not going to be the adult in the room. And look, everybody's human and everybody gets to have moments where you're not at your best and you get to have, you know, uh, a meltdown. Like you think you're going to run a company for how many ever years and be successful and not have a meltdown. I have news for you. You're going to have a meltdown. We we all have meltdowns. Yeah. Yeah. We all have meltdowns. Right. But that's, that's not what he's saying. Right. He's like, I want my team to manage up for me. And that's instead of being working hard to be the best version of myself and having somebody who calls me on my, on my stuff, uh, on my shadows and the things I'm working on, like a coach. So you said that you're working not with the CEO, you're working with someone on on his team. And so how's this impacting the team? Are they going along with this uh, instruction? It's exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. And he has churned through, the CEO has churned through all kinds of executives on this team. Continues to churn through teams, right? So it's the, the churning of executives. The inability to keep high quality people on your leadership team is another great way to stagnate. Probably a little bigger in terms of company, right? 50 people ish 30 people somewhere in there right you can't keep a leadership team that because it takes a while to coalesce a leadership team that's high performing right yes performing storming norming performing right if you keep turning that team over you're never going to get there so that's one that um that's just one way a ceo can churn through a leader leadership team mm-hmm. Right. But, but I mean, um, I know, dysfunctional I behavior that, is everywhere. Yeah. Well, another big area of focus that, that I know is, is an issue is, uh, and, and I've, you know, I've seen this in lots of companies. It's a big problem. It's probably, probably the, one of the top three startup killers out there is ineffective management of co-founder conflict. So, you know, start company, you've got two or three founders, whatever it is, and one person's the CEO and we're off and running and doing whatever it is. And conflict invariably arises, differences of vision, differences of what we ought to be doing or, you know, whatever. And a lot of coaches, I presume, including yourself, get called in to deal with what we call co-founder conflict, which can literally kill a company, right? Yeah, it, that usually happens early-ish. Early-ish, on, okay. Early-ish, right? Good, a good solid impasse, we'll, we'll do it, but cu- first couple of years is usually where that stuff, eh, two to three, you can make it a ways in before you get um, to something where you really have a different way of seeing things. And and the, yeah, I've seen it kill companies, but more often than not, I see one co-founder leave. So someone wins and someone loses. Someone wins, someone like, and it usually sets the business back one to two years. Mm-hmm. Because we're not managing conflict, we're not taking responsibility, we're not communicating in a way that's respectful of all parties. Yeah, the this key player walks out, right? This when a founder leaves, um, it can it can be a relief. So, sometimes it's a relief for everyone around them when when the uh, the conflict between two founders is is distracting the entire company, and it is suddenly gone, it can be actually an incredibly productive uh, release that everybody just is lighter. But that's mm-hmm. usually a co-founder is playing a pretty, pretty big role. And so there's this just gaping hole and it takes a long time to fill it. So, 
And it's really the relationship cycle too, right? So it's, it's, it's going to be something that's moving up and down over time and, you know, relationship with a co-founder and there's going to be good days, bad days. Important thing is to have tools and ways of communicating and, and minimizing the conflicts. And one of the uh, assumptions I'm ha I have here is that, you know, you said earlier that a lot of VCs will get to the point where they're just saying, hire a coach. Maybe they're noticing co-founder conflict or some type of lack of appropriate communication. And they're saying, I don't want to really deal with this myself because it's not what I do, but let's figure this out and go hire a coach. I, I think that invariably happens, but I think most investors only work with the CEO. Mm -hmm. And a CEO will often not share that kind of conflict with, um, with their venture capitalists, right? With their investors. It's often under the hood. They'll withhold. Right. Oh, yeah. Why would you share that with somebody who could write you another check? Like that's, that's the vulnerability that most uh, relationships that are investor to investee don't have. <laughs> Right. Um, I, I think most of the time when they when they say to a founder, go get a coach, they're seeing something in the founder that's going to limit the potential of the business. Um, but you said something I want to go back to around co-founder conflict, right? To minimize conflict. I actually disagree a little bit mm -hmm. or like I, I would I would say I say it a little differently. I want to have I want to surface more disagreement. And I want to practice the little ones. Practice the little I, ones. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's actually the opposite. So at a founder, we were talking about, you know, conflict and revealing and, and being revealed to your co-founder. And they said to me, I'll never forget it. They said, isn't this just making mountains out of molehills? And I see that a lot, that, that thought, right? Like, I, oh, I, I just brush off that, that kind of stuff or water off my back, right? Don't take it personally. That's my favorite. I hate that. But, don't take it personally. Uh, don't take it personally. Yeah. Um, it's all personal. Yeah. Right. Um, but they, this co-founder said, well, isn't that making mountains out of molehills? And I said, yes. And you're building a muscle around having something to say to your co-founder and working through the thing that's bothering you. And I want you to work through like the itty bitty thing first. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I want you to like do three or four of those little itty bitty things and then have a medium thing. Right. But like, actually, you know, it really bothered me that the product release date slipped by three days. That actually wasn't okay with me. Well, one of the, I mean, I'll just say, Julie, one of the resources that I, I think is so great that you have provided to the world, at least I think it's your work, is that rupture and repair checklist for co founders and for teams. Mm. And yeah. this is a list of what, like 40 or 50 questions or statements that I can use when I want to express myself and be seen and do it in a way that is uh, respectful and, and, and helpful, right? Tell us, tell us about that. What went into that, uh, building that uh, checklist? Yeah, that's, um, thank you for bringing it up. I, hadn't, I actually hadn't thought about it in a little while because it came out of a discussion with a couple of co-founders that were really struggling. And they didn't, lots of times, so sometimes as, um, as humans, sometimes we have the thought, but we can't get to the words. Sometimes we have the thought and the words and we can't, we're not willing to reveal, right? So there's two places for people to get, get stuck. And this, that's actually really important. 
right? When you're, when you're dealing with a co-founder, because if you see them having an emotion, if you're reading people well, right, you might see that the words, you might ask them, right? Are, are you like, this is where I got to with my co-founder. Uh, I could see that he was having an experience, but he couldn't get the words, right? And so the, the benefit of that document to me was you have the thought or the, the sensation or the emotion around it. You can't, you don't know the words and the words do matter, right? Here, here are some, I give my clients words to try with people all the time and they don't have to use them, right? But I'm trying to sink, uh, more thoughtful, more conscious words, more, it's, it's like learning a different language, sometimes conscious entrepreneurship, right? The way I think about it, you're learning a vocabulary, you're learning a set of questions, right? That was one of the things I, I wrote down, like questions, some of the go-to questions that I collect, right? Um, how is this person or situation here for my learning? Right. That's mm -hmm. a great one for me, right? Mm -hmm. What does great support around this issue look like for you? Um, what stories am I attached to? Right, I could go on, but these these are things that I ask my clients when I'm coaching because I want them to have the like the words so that they can get from their limbic system to the words and then out. Yeah, and the and these are I mean this is so helpful in terms of the of the day to day, and we all make these mistakes of uh, listening to respond instead of listening to be heard. Or wanting to be right. Like one person in the conversation is right and one person in the conversation is wrong. As opposed to collaborating on solving the issue or challenge or whatever is coming up. And so when I see things like this uh, checklist of yours and, and these prompts, you know, it's got stuff in there like reflective listening. How can, I, how can I show up and listen in an active way to make sure that I'm deeply understanding the person and reinforce with him or her that I get it and that I'm on their side, for example. So that's one of the things that, you know, there's basically, you can be coached on this all the time. There's no end to the amount of coaching required no. here because no. it's not really natural for us, at least at the beginning, right? What we, what we do at the beginning yeah. is revert, revert to how we always learned how to do things. And the, I think the job of a coach is to pattern interrupt some of this stuff. And I like the ideas around humble inquiry. So really getting to the root of uh, what's going on uh, and really showing up as a partner for the person as opposed to holding very tightly to whatever my opinion or point of view is. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And actually like this, this I want to tell this story really quick because it's so relevant. Uh, I was talking to my partner, my life in my life, um, mm -hmm. partner, and uh, I asked him, so he tends to ruminate. Right? Have you ever, have you ever seen someone in your I life? I tend who, to ruminate too. I know exactly what that's yeah, all about. Right. Yeah. And, and someone who knows you well, right. Say theoretically, your co-founder knows what you look like when you ruminate. Hmm. Yes. Right? My, my wife, right? my wife, uh, calls it my fish face. She calls it fish yeah. face. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. So my, my story around that is that sometimes that rumination is actually really productive. It's thinking time and you really enjoy mm -hmm. it and you're thinking through a problem and actually interrupting you or trying to comfort you would, would not be helpful, right? And you would not like it, right? Other times, interrupting that rumination might be such comfort to you, right? I'm stuck in a pattern, in a thought loop, right? Going round and round. 
from the outside, I know you have the fish face, but I can't tell which one it is. Mm -hmm. Door one or door two, right? Instead of me deciding uh, what to do about that, I asked. All right, so this is another, another, this is an axiom that I, I'm yet to prove wrong. Anything that is implicit could be better explicit. And so this is how I asked the question. What does, when I see you making this face, what does great support look like for you in that moment, right? Then you choose, you tell me how best to, what's the question I can use or the gesture I can use that interrupts your flow, but you can tell me very quickly, which if you want to be interrupted or not. Right. Great. And I, yeah. I didn't ask, like, I didn't make up the answer, but now we have this language and you chose it. That's all. Awesome. You're making me think of that. This is essentially a, a language or vocabulary for, uh, for working agreements, how we work together or how we communicate and, and, and establishing like literally the process of how we're going to do that. Oh yeah. But like, I have a plug in for a second, but I have, I have another story. Okay, we're pausing while Julie plugs in her computer. Okay. So another story from my own life. So my, I call my co-founder. This was my coworker at at TechStars. We were very close. We ran programs together for years. We had an argument, like probably one of the ones I remember the best, uh, and it happened because. I heard news about one of our portfolio companies from someone else. And I told him, my, my, like my co-founder, that news. And he said, I know. To which, you know, you, you can't see my, the incredulity on my face, but I was, how do, you, how do you mean you know you didn't tell me? Like, why am I hearing it from someone else? And actually, if you read um, Stan Tatkin's book, on the it's like the the couple bubble but i the co-founder bubble is the equivalency of it the book um, is the couple bubble no he talks about the couple bubble it's oh, um it's on attachment styles which is sort of like a secret sauce for having a great co-founder relationship if you ask me all right okay. it's, it's sort of the base layer um it's one of the violations of a couple bubble and call it a co-founder bubble is hearing something from someone else about the relationship or about that impacts you from someone else. All right. So, uh, it's, it's a break in trust. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't intentional, right? He had heard the thing and then, you know, next email came in, next pitch came in next, you know, 13 other things happened and he forgot. So I, I can understand that, but it's in that moment, right? That was clearly a trigger for me. And uh, what repair looked like in that moment was he apologized. And together we created a system so it wouldn't happen again. So what we did is we created a place where it was visible to both of us, um, where it sort of had two notepads. Uh, it, it One said, Julie, things to tell Natty. That was my coworker. And Natty thinks until Julie, right? And so the agreement we had, right? We talked about 
clean agreements or working agreements was that if you have something that your co-founder really should hear from you first, you have a place to put it. And you agree that you, you like, you don't have to explain everything about it, but you have to put a bullet point on it so that you don't forget. And this and was it's a in physical a place, whiteboard in the office or this was like a shared note? It was a digital board. It was, it was actually our Kanban board. So what we did, if you're familiar with a Kanban board, right? It's the visualization of your work. If you're not familiar with it. We just had a column that was on the very left-hand side. And we made two, um, two cards. And the, those were our two cards. And so often they were empty, but we had a place to put it. And it was no longer, and it never, honestly, it never happened again, which is pretty impressive because the amount of time it now took for us to note the thing that we needed to tell our co-founder was under 30 seconds, right? And that's a reasonable ask from your co-founder. And so even if it had happened again, and I had heard it from someone else, but he had put it on that board to tell me, I would have been totally okay with it. We just hadn't had a chance to sink, right? So uh, it's things like that, right? That's that's what co-founder relationships are about, right? Um, how you make them better. And you have to run into the things and work through them in order for you to, to have those agreements. You're not going to, you can't know what they are. It's a life exercise. It's not an academic exercise. So, yeah. so, so you can't sit yeah. there and assume, oh, this, this, and then the other kind of thing. You got to yeah. bump into it. And then say, oh, okay, what do I need to do now? What has to happen? How do I yep. take responsibility for, for what just went on and, and so yep. on? Yeah, that's yeah, that's why. So going back to like the mountains and molehills, right? I'm like, well, how many molehills can you can you get out, right? While the stakes are low and while the business is good, <laughs> right? Great. Work on the little molehills. So that and you, they can build over time. You know, like small yeah. points of friction can really accumulate over time because – as we both know, building a startup, building a company is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And so you get a little bit of, you know, to use the metaphor, like sand in the gears, and you'll start to notice that over time. So your point of, hey, let's practice on the molehills so that, you know, if a mountain comes up, we know what we're doing, or even better, maybe nothing ever becomes a mountain. That's something that can really help us as well in terms of how we're going to be, how we're going to be working together. Yeah. Is your mic okay? You yeah. Um, so let me let, let me switch yeah. gears here so and well. thank you. You know, one of the things that um, you've worked on a lot is the accelerator programs, and you've been uh, not only with TechStars, which is where you and I met many 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 moons ago. Uh, you've also worked with the Telluride Venture Accelerator and others, and I know there's a lot of curiosity. Uh, founders, entrepreneurs are really kind of wondering, how do I know if this is the right thing for me? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks or costs? How should I be thinking about whether an accelerator is something that's going to help? And this could be true for someone in, you know, tech, sort of the traditional accelerator space, but those have really broadened now uh, and accelerators are active in all sorts of industries and, and categories. And so since you've had so much experience with them, I'm curious what your advice is on someone thinking about, is this right for me? Should I be considering this as a vehicle? Yeah. There's a lot there. <laughs> um, the first higher, highest level order of thinking I have for you on accelerators is it should feel a little bit like picking a college. 
Right? There is a quality distinction, not just in the quality of the program, which I think could vary uh, and could be commensurate with the reputation or not, right? Um, but also the prestige or the the halo effect that you get from being in an accelerator, that does map. So it's just like college, right? If you go to Harvard, even if you had the worst professors and you drank your way through the school and somehow passed, right? Like you still get a Harvard halo effect. You probably had to be, hope you had to be something special to get in. But anyway, you know what I mean? Like uh, it's the same, right? With the top accelerators, the the Techstars, the YCs, and a, and a couple, handful of others. And there's, so there's a top tier and they, I think it should be treated differently. The exception to that rule for me is if you have a, um, an industry focused accelerator that has the network connections that can accelerate your company. Okay. So if I'm doing it's something like really, saying, if I'm doing something really niche, really specific, yeah. there's probably something out there that no one's ever heard of except for the right people who are in that industry. Yeah, so um, I'll give you the college example again, right? I really want to do art. Uh, you might go to the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. It's a great art school. Is it the best school? No, it's not ranked as the highest school. But for, if you're an art student and you come as an art student out of that program, you're going to get a look, right? It's yep. the same for accelerators. So that's thing one. Thing two is the people who run your program are really important. You have, they actually have a lot of influence over the quality of your experience. So I tell people not to go to any accelerator where you have a new, a new person running it. It's, it's not who it's not. If I were, had, if I had a startup, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to someone who um, is just learning how to run an accelerator. I want to go to somebody who's running their second or probably their third, their third or fourth accelerator because they've still got a ton of energy and they know how to do it now. And they're still really jazzed about companies and they don't have too many in their portfolio yet. That's, that's the person that I want to take their accelerator. Um, and the person I'm going to ask about how that leadership, the person who's running the accelerator, people who, team who's going to run the accelerator, how they really are for founders is the alumni. I think they're Check the in with the accurate. Alumni. Yeah. They, I think they're the only accurate um, depiction of what the experience you're going to get is the closest. Um, and so if you're like, people ask me all the time about tech stars, right? Cause well, there are 50 tech stars programs. I think it could, they can be so vastly different. This number of stories I have from people having a wildly different experience. Um, the, the experience that you had was very different than when that leadership team changed. And, and I had a bigger leadership role, like program even a year or two years later, was quite different. You talk to, you know some of those entrepreneurs, like they had a different experience. So similar in lots of ways. Structurally, a lot of things, some, a lot of people say the same, but uh, I would say somewhere between 30 and 50% of the, like the feel and the experience of the accelerator is different. Um, what doesn't change is their network and their connections and their ability to like leverage that network. Mm -hmm. um, that can be, you, sh you should look at that. What does it look like? Well, how can it work for you? And should you use it? Part of what you're paying for, especially if you give up equity. Um, let's see, what's the last one? I would think about whether they have funding 
as a as follow on. I don't think that's necessarily fair because I think there are a lot of good accelerators out there that don't have follow on funding or the opportunity for that. Um, but it would sure be a bonus for me if if I thought they could. The ability to continue just, to support yeah, the program. Um, I don't know what the status is at, at Techstars these days. I think it's more algorithmic, which I think is a good decision on their part. Um, and you know, other accelerators, it's hard to raise a fund. So some of them have, some of them don't. But it's it's nice to have that. It's just like a little extra cash that you can get access to later on down. And now for the for the rounds. entrepreneurs or founders who are you know, in this decision about, do I do an accelerator? Is this the right program for me? What are the, what are the mistakes that people make? What are the top, you know, things that, that you've seen teams do wrong once they're in an accelerator? The number one thing you should drive me crazy that I see companies make a mistake around is not fully taking advantage of the, the period of time that they have with that accelerator. So this, I actually wrote an article about this, right? Um, this is advice. It, when, once you get accepted, go read it. It, it. I laid it out. But the thing that, that is hard for you to see when you're in it is that the spotlight is on you, mm -hmm. right? So everybody who's around that accelerator, alumni, mentors, the program team, the whatever, the whole network is shining all their energy on you. You're the focus of, of attention. You're the, you're focus, the right? centerpiece like you of the buffet. Attention, yeah. Right. And and I think in the thought, in the back of the minds, sometimes founders are like, well, I'll have, I mean, I'm part of the network and the network, even, we even do a disservice, right? Say, oh, you're um, in Techstars uh, for life, right? Okay. But I'm telling you that, that particular time period is different. So you should use it because you have all the attention on you then, right? It will be harder to get that same attention once you've left. It just will, right? Because the next class comes. And so they've got to, and, and by the way, there's some amount of pushing you out of the nest in an accelerator that is good for you, right? This is why accelerators are different from incubators. Incubators are something we used to do, but companies would kind of languish or they wouldn't, they didn't have a forcing mechanism to, to go out and fly, grow that company, you know? And so, so one of the things I think a good accelerator also does is like, look, we're going to support you, but you got to do some of the work yourself, right? You got to go build a company. We'll help you. We're not going to hold your hand anymore. Uh, this, I mean, this this kind of meets that uh, it, that uh, metaphor you're using of college, right? It's the same idea. Uh, there's another class coming behind you. There's you know another graduating class, someone else. You're a senior for only one year, and then boom, off you go to do your thing. So similar thing, similar thing. So it sounds like you're saying the number one issue is um, people not being fully present or taking the most advantage of the time, be it however long that is, a couple months, whatever. In the yeah. program itself. I, I mean, I think founders would probably have a different answer to this question, honestly. But the ones that I liked working with the best and the ones that I poured resources on. So like, think about it from the, the program standpoint. Like, like if, if I have someone who is going to eat as much as they can from the, the resource buffet, I'm going to keep putting resources in front of them. Right? Because I have more. I just, I'm limited by time in terms of how many things I can give you. Right? Or how many people I can have you meet, how many, whatever, right? So if you're just like, bring it on, more and more, I need this, right? And actually, being, I kind of liked founders who were uh, like politely pushy. Mm -hmm. Can I get this? Can, can you help me 
make it to this person? Who would help me do this? Right? Like they're trying to gather with both arms, the resources. I, I loved those. They were a little, I love hated them. Right. Because I had to work hard on their behalf, but I knew that those founders were the ones that were going to, um, but were more likely to be able to find their way through when they, when they left because they knew how to resource themselves. Right. And that's a lot of the game, especially early on. Cool. Great. Thanks. Uh, that, that's a, that's a great perspective. I'm, there's a lot of questions on, on accelerators and, and do they work and, and do they not? We could probably do a whole discussion episode <laughs> just on, yeah. just on that. And, and, uh, and I, I can share my Techstars experience, which, which you were a witness to, uh, Julia, as, as we wrap up here, there's, there's three questions I want to ask just to get a, uh, your point of view on on things. And the first question I'm curious about is, we talked a lot about conscious entrepreneurs and this word consciousness, but you know, I'm curious, what is your definition of a conscious entrepreneur? Yeah, let me, let me try one on. I think I'm still working on this. So if that's fair enough, my definition, my working definition is someone who's aware of their own patterns of thought, actions, and behaviors as well as at a minimum being curious, if not aware of how their impact is on others. But I think there's something missing in that definition. I like that definition a lot. Um, but actually like this is, this is a whole rabbit hole. I apologize for opening this right at the end. But I've been doing a lot of work around AI and I think a lot of AIs will fit that definition, but I don't believe AI is conscious. And the part that's missing for me is something that is connected to a larger, something that's larger than themselves, right? That, that start, it starts, and I know it starts to consciousness, conscious entrepreneurship. This path of building companies, if you think about it for a while, it can be a spiritual path. It's not where I start with entrepreneurs because it scares them, right? And 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 actually, it uh, it's not what they're looking for, right? I just want to build a business. But the thing is, as you endeavor on building this business, the questions you have to ask yourself, like, how do I want to treat people? What what impact do I want to have in this world? What is the meaning of what I'm doing? Why am I doing this? I could go work for big company X and get, make more money, right? Why am I doing this? Those are, those are pretty spiritual questions. They are. And so, that, so several of several of my top, you know, go-to people on this, and, and, and I'm thinking uh, specifically about uh, Sri Kumar Rao and Gay Hendricks, they will both say very clearly, the path of an entrepreneur is a spiritual path. Essentially, all we are ever working on is our own growth. We think we're building a company, we think we're doing customers or fundraising or building a team or whatever it is, and all we are ever actually doing is working on ourselves. So I appreciate that coda or that little addition there to the uh, to what you were saying about about conscious entrepreneurs. Other question I'm yeah, curious about that... is go ahead. I was just going to say I think it took me ten years to get there, Alex. Like, and, and so I, I, I think it's okay if as an entrepreneur, you're like, nope, I don't, maybe, you, maybe that never becomes something you endeavor to, like the path is different for every person, right? But this, that was, 
that's where I am now after 10 years of this. Tell me a bit about your personal practice. We didn't talk about this much today, but you know, I'm always curious, what do you do to stay level-headed and happy and sane and healthy and uh, you know, all that knowing full well that uh, your job is tough. You've got a ton of things going on. So how do you, how do you work uh, on a day-to-day basis to make sure you're investing in those things that matter? Yeah. I learned this thought from another coach. We were talking about how we were doing our own work. So I'll go back to a growth mindset a little bit, because I do think that's part of my, my own practices continuing to grow. I I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to ask other people to be uncomfortable and to grow if I'm not willing to do it myself. But the way this other coach said it to me is if I'm coaching the same way I am today in five years, I'm not doing a very good job as a coach. Right. And I believe that. Right. So I continue to be curious. I continue to push myself. I wish like I had some part of me wants to say like, I have a disciplined practice work every morning. I do 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of that. And then right? I have my Oak journal here and it's great. And it has this morning routine. And I can tell you, I'm not very good about doing it. I will say that I am very good about reflecting on what is working and what is not and setting goals for myself. Um, and asking the question, what are you doing in terms of personal or professional growth? And if the answer right now is nothing, that should, why? It's okay. Sometimes in life you have a year, maybe two, where it's just not happening for you. But in general, your answer should be something, right? So what am I doing? Uh, So I'm not going to, like, there's not a routine other than to say, if I am close to burnout or I have a, a fully loaded week or a fully loaded month, I'm going to make sure I block time on the other side of that to recover. That's been a hard lesson to learn, but I know, I know I'm going to need it. I don't want to get to the place where I need it and then have to find it. I know I'm going to need it. So I'm going to block it in my calendar and, and give myself that gift. Um, the work I have, I have my own coach. It's doing, I'm currently doing some embodiment work, which is really fascinating. Um, I'm doing some work um, around internal family systems or parse work. It's, I keep bringing it to my clients. It's helpful to me and it's been a game changer for them. Um, earlier this year, I did a, a silent meditation retreat at the Insight Meditation Center, which is fabulous if you can get away for a retreat. It was a meta retreat. And if you're not familiar with um, M-E-T-T-A, there's two T's. It's not Facebook. That's something different. Um, it's a loving kindness practice. And it is also an antidote, an antidote to fear and judgment and anxiety. And I have radically incorporated it into my life when I feel those emotions. So that's Sounds been, really meaningful. I've it to founders. Yeah. And then I've also done some uh, trauma release work uh, with a couple of different modalities. Because again, I just want to lighten my own shadow. I want to be aware of my shadow. I want to work with my shadow. I want to release uh, big T, little T traumas as, as they become as I become aware of them for two reasons. One, I think I'm better. I'm lighter. I am happier. But two, I can also, I can only guide someone to a place that I've been. And I think if you have a coach that says anything different, I I worry. Right. So that's what I'm doing. Great. Thank you. And, and following that, 
you're someone who's who's uh, clearly invested a lot in yourself and your own personal growth. What are your top resources for people? You mentioned the the meta loving kindness meditation, but you know, I'm thinking books, videos, webinars. You know, what are the what are the things that you would recommend if someone's looking to learn what you know? So. If you're interested in IFS, this is a book I've been giving a lot of my clients lately. It's, it's by Richard Schwartz. It's No Bad Parts. Um, and it actually leads. I like the audible version just because he does some of the meditations to help you find some parts. I've never done parts work. Um, and I think there are, there are IFS coaches out there. That would be one. I love a meditation app. Um, you know, uh, I am I'm quite partial to 10% Happier because I know the founders and I love what they're they're doing. And how they're how thoughtful they are about it, but honestly, whatever works for you, right? If it's calm, if it's um, I did the Sam Harris, Sam Harris, right? The inside meditation. Anyway, uh, I think that's his. It, whatever meditation app works for you, I I am a firm believer that you can't really do this personal growth work and work on yourself if you're not gonna be committed to noticing. And the fastest way or most effective way to increase your ability to notice is to have a meditation practice. I can teach you all the things. We can talk about your parts for days. But if you can't notice when a part shows up, it's useless. You can't, I can teach you all the emotional words or we can practice using them or, you know, practice having them move through you and, uh, you know, process them. But if you can't notice when they're happening, you can't do anything about it. So I think that's a, a fundamental that awareness practice is a building block for all the other stuff, any other modality. Um, and then I like, I actually, I'll give you one last tip because it's very broad. Uh, it, back to the Stan Tacken uh, mention, almost any book about relationships probably has something that you could use with either your team or your co-founder. I totally buy that. Uh, my wife and I were just listening to Conscious Loving by Gay Hendricks and Katie Hendricks uh, on a drive recently. And it was like, holy smokes, does this have applicability in all sorts of areas yep. of our life? You know, we were both just like, you know, slapping our foreheads during the drive. And it prompted a lot of really valuable discussion for us. And so uh, that is something that indeed will percolate out and benefit other uh, areas of my life. Well, hey, Julie, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining us here on The Conscious Entrepreneur. Lovely to see you. Thank you for sharing all these thoughts and ideas and uh, appreciate you being here. You bet, Alex. It was a joy. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.